Good morning. Welcome to the 1045 service if you're watching online. Good to have you here. Did it start raining outside? I haven't been out since whenever I got here early this morning. Is it, is it raining now? So I figured it was coming. So uh, if you got to get wet, you might as well be inside dry in the house of God, singing to him. Uh, he wiped out anyone's outdoor plans today. If you Yesterday was beautiful, but not at all like today out there, but... Um, Good to be here and good to be uh, singing and worshiping the Lord, so glad to see all of you this morning. We had a great time in the first service, looking forward to what God will do in the remainder of this service. Uh, just wanted to kind of cover a couple of quick things. This Wednesday will be the last uh, study. I will finish the book of Joel this Wednesday, and it'll also be our last Wednesday service of 2023. I'll go over that in one second. So. Uh, come on out. We'll be streaming it live if you're out of town or uh, can't get here uh, for the service, but it'll be streaming live. And uh, we'll finish Joel chapter 3, uh, the day of the Lord, which is mentioned five times in the book. We'll kind of look at the final, fifth and final time it's mentioned and really the coming end of the age. So all of that is this Wednesday. And then uh, I had mentioned last Sunday and by the way, didn't Matt do a great job playing the piano? Uh, and obviously, it was a keyboard, but um, uh, he just uh, loves the Lord. And I had, just before he had played, I had, I had announced last week that uh, the group that we want to minister to this year, if you want to give uh, a, an extra offering or something to this effect, uh, is the single and widowed, divorced um, widows in our church, That those are, that are of the young at heart age bracket, and uh, we have some that have more, more needs than others, so we want to bless uh, them in some capacity, even if it helps buying some of their grandkids a, a few gifts or things of that nature. So we will have a special box out there, and the drop-down is on the website, too, if you go to our website, uh, calvarychapelrva.com, and then you'll see on the giving, there's a drop-down for Compassion at Christmas, and so if you'd like to, to help with that, uh, if you put it in a regular box and put a memo uh, for Compassionate Christmas or for widows, single, uh, you know, we'll, we'll earmark it uh, to all of 100% will go directly to uh, those ladies. So uh, I encourage you to prayerfully consider doing something Jesus gave him his best, and so we want to uh, give uh, back at this time of the year as well. So speaking of Christmas season, obviously today I'm in the book of Acts, but uh, next, uh, next couple of Sundays will be a little different. Uh, we'll be looking at the advent or the approach of the coming of Christ. And so uh, next uh, Sunday, uh, the 17th, uh, I'll be uh, giving a message, um, and all the titles are up there, uh, related to Jesus' uh, first coming. And then we have the Friday night uh, that Scott had mentioned, those adults that are going to be in the choir. Uh, the kids will be singing too. The kids are way cuter, but that's a different, you know, that, that, that'll be that Friday night. That's at 5 o'clock uh, and... Um, and then we have the last two Sundays of the year uh, being Christmas Eve falls on a Sunday. So that Sunday, uh, it's not that much different. We have 11 a.m. service. So uh, even if you normally run late, you'll be on time. So uh, it, it's 11 o'clock service and just the one 11 o'clock service, the no 845 service. The following and the last Sunday of the new year, of this year, sorry, the last Sunday of 2023 is New Year's Eve. And that'll also be an 11 a.m. service. So other than this Wednesday, we have this Wednesday, and these are the four remaining services after this Wednesday. So this Wednesday plus these four. And so it's a five-Sunday month, so we have three Sundays left plus that Friday night. That Friday night takes the place of one of the Wednesday nights because there's no Wednesday services the 20th or the 27th. And uh, just gives some of our servants a little time. Uh, some of you can host people that you, man, I've been all year, we have this, we've had people, we said all year, we need to get together with you, we need to get together with you, we need to get together with you, and we finally will, and we'll just take as much uh, of the time as we can to do that, and uh, so minister uh, to other folks, and as uh, Scott had mentioned, we want people that don't have a family to then to be knitted in as well, so that's the service schedule, we'll have some signs out by the the road later this week for our community to see these things as well. So that'll be all out there. And by the way, the ladies had a great day here yesterday. Thank you, Connie, for sharing. Uh, yeah, so I understand it was standing room only, although they did get to sit, but uh, we, we ran out of room at all the tables. 
which is a good problem to have. And, and uh, by the way, the Christmas decorations up here, thank you to Melissa and Liz Babu and my wife and, and that did all the decorations all around the church. You guys did a great job. Thank you for all of that. Uh, it looks great. Uh, with that, I don't have anything else. We do want to continue to pray for our nation. I, I woke up this morning and, and I saw that uh, we had some massive uh, tornadoes that went through the Nashville area and um, just leveled uh, certain areas, which is very rare in December that you would get that with the cold air and the warm air mass colliding. And um, you know, I, I've said this. We, we're in the Book of Joel. We'll be there Wednesday. Um, you know, and we this past Wednesday we had prayer. We talked about how Elijah prayed and it didn't rain in Israel for three and a half years. Uh, that's a prophet they really wanted to get rid of. So uh, he prayed, it did not rain for three and a half years. And, I, and I've said many times that America, we literally are like the Jenga game, you know? We're just one little, pull a little piece out and all of it collapses. I mean, it could be, it could be you know, uh, a massive earthquake like took place, uh, the one that sent the Mississippi River uh, back north, um, it could be uh, terrorist attacks, it could be economic, it could be all kinds of things. Uh, we've never had a famine where it didn't rain for three and a half years in our country. That would sink us pretty bad if we did not get rain, I mean anywhere in the country for three and a half years. But God's been really gracious and he keeps calling us to repentance, amen? amen. He's been really good to us. We just sang your goodness uh, in the song we just sang, God really has been good to our country. Uh, and yet he's called us to stand the gap for those that, that don't really have any interest in coming to the Lord. So we've been praying for revival. We've been praying for it for a long time, um, more than 15 years. And ever since the pandemic, we started getting on our knees, and the Lord has continued to have us do so. We didn't do it last Sunday when Matt was here. But if you're able to, we'll take about 30 seconds on our knees. And again, if you have bad knees or can't do it, totally fine. Just stay there and pray with us, and then we'll get into God's Word again. I'm praying for the nation of Japan today as well. We try and pray for one nation in addition to our own. Father, yet again we humble ourselves before you, our Lord, our Creator. We think of this time of year, Lord, we're reminded that Jesus, you pierced the darkness. You came that we might have life. And, and Lord, that life would be through your salvation and your shed blood. But Lord, so many then, so many now don't know who you are or resisting you. We live in a country where most people, not all, but most people, Lord, have heard the gospel at least once, and yet millions upon millions have rejected you, choosing the passing pleasures of sin, staying in the bondage of what they're in. Lord, I thank you for every person here and online that you've already rescued, Lord, but if there's even one in this room that needs to be brought to Christ today, that today would be the day. Lord, we pray for so many, family members, neighbors, friends, co-workers, uh, that we've been praying for for a long time, that are still in darkness, still think they don't need you, but we know that one second into eternity they would know that resisting you was the worst mistake a person could ever, ever make. And Lord, we pray that many would come to repentance. We pray from the highest offices of the land in this country to those that are homeless on the street that many would come to faith. Even this Christmas season, we pray, Lord, you would do miracles like we're about to see in the life of Paul or Saul. Lord, that you would bring many to saving faith. We pray for a great awakening in the church. We pray, Lord, even the lukewarmness that is in this church, and there's a lot of it in this church, and there's a lot of it in the church. Lord, we pray that you would stir us and that we would return to our first love. We pray that we grow in your grace and in our relationship with you. Lord, we pray for the nation of Japan. 99% or so don't know you as Lord and Savior. We pray for a great awakening and a work of repentance in that nation, Lord, that island nation that many in Japan, from Tokyo, the world's largest city, would come to know you. And all across Asia, and in fact, around the world, and Lord, we pray for our persecuted brothers and sisters all over the planet, Lord. We pray that you rescue them, heal them, refresh them. We ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you for, thank you for praying with us. Turn with me to Acts chapter 9. 
Acts chapter 9. Uh, I'm going to not read the entire portion we're going to cover. Uh, I'll read, there's 20 verses we'll uh, be covering. I will read through verse 10, and we'll read the second 10 as we go, just for the sake of time. But if your Bibles are open, uh, Acts chapter 9, starting in verse 1. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went uh, to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogue of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground, and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. And Saul arose from the ground. When his eyes were opened, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was there three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now Ananias was a certain disciple at Damascus. There, no, there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. Let's pray. We'll stop there. Father, we open your word now. What a treasure. It's already forever, Lord, magnified here and in heaven. Lord, we know that your word is eternal. It'll never fade. Lord, we know that it has power. We know that the Lord has uh, the power to open our eyes, to convict us, to give us comfort, to give us correction. Lord, it has the power to help us to see you in a more clear manner. Lord, we pray that our eyes would be opened by your word, that we would be stirred by your spirit, that we would be softened and settled by your spirit. You'd remove every distraction from this room, that your word would have its perfect place, that your presence, Lord, would penetrate every heart, give us soft hearts and open ears and willing hearts to obey that which you're speaking. And Lord, may we be truly conformed to the image of Jesus here this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So we'll close our last Acts series study here of 2023 this morning with the most documented conversion to Jesus in the book of Acts, and for that matter, the entire New Testament. This conversion of Saul of Tarsus uh, to the Apostle Paul is recorded three times in the book of Acts. The first time it's mentioned here, it's in third person. Luke is actually doing the speaking. Luke is telling Saul's story. Then the second and third time, it is Saul, who by then is called Paul, who retells his own story, the second and third time it's mentioned, recounting what, or testifying what Christ has done for him. And the three times that this conversion of Saul is in the Bible, in the New Testament, particularly in the book of Acts, uh, does not count the numerous times and you probably read these little phrases from uh, Paul and maybe overlooked them, maybe going forward you won't. But it doesn't even, and doesn't even count the numerous times that Paul in his epistles, of which he writes 13 in the New Testament, uh, refers back to his prior conversion and his prior life many, many times. And I, I hope that us in this room, I know I refer back to my salvation many times, even in casual conversation with people I've never met before, I might say something like, well, in my pre-Christ days, and the FedEx driver's like, what are you talking about? I, I have no idea what you're talking about. Because uh, I'll, I'll say it to randomly to people, and it, it's a good conversation starter, and you get a chance to tell people about what you were and what you become through Jesus. Now, the opening of Acts chapter 9, it is powerful, it is pivotal and transitional, and the Holy Spirit conveying how the Lord was and how the Lord will be working through the gospel and through the church and those who are called, those who are raised up and sent into the world by Jesus. 
And this man, Saul's life, it's going to be a watershed moment in time for the church that by the Spirit of God is still impacting the church to this very day. Now starting in Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 2, we saw the prominent voice of Peter. Remember, Peter stands up on Pentecost. We saw John at his side going into the temple. We saw them preach with power and and disciple the early church. Then we saw Stephen, and we saw Philip, two of the initial seven uh, deacons. They were raised up and used mightily by God. Both of those men, Stephen and Philip, performing miracles and preaching with the power of the Holy Spirit. One, of course, was killed and taken straight up to heaven. The other, Philip, was used to bring the gospel to Samaria to the Ethiopian unit, to the cities all in the coastal plain there on the Mediterranean. But each of these men that Luke writes of in chapters 1 through 8, Peter, John, Stephen, Philip, I don't know if you've ever considered this, but those four men and all the other disciples that aren't mentioned by name, they were all hated by Saul. Saul knew them by name. Not everybody, but he knew those four guys by name. In fact, in Stephen's death, you'll recall, when he was murdered, Saul was present. And then Philip, the whole reason he ends up in Samaria is he's running from Saul among those that worked for Saul. And yet, unknown to anyone else but God, Saul was about to join the very many hated. That he vehemently was against and he was trying to kill. He was soon going to believe and receive the same Jesus that they were following. They didn't know it, and he didn't know it. You know, it's really cool to think about. Maybe there's somebody that you know that you think that they're the least possible to ever come to Jesus, that they could be really coming close to being all in and saved and following the Lord. Maybe even someone of notoriety of a name, because everyone knew who Saul was in Jerusalem. It'd be maybe a name you'd never think to take somebody in the entertainment world or business world or just someone that would just shock you to come to Jesus. We pray for those things. But if you're taking notes this morning, you see the title, from adversary to apostle, the amazing conversion of Saul. Back to verse 1. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest, and he asked for letters uh, to the, uh, from him to the synagogue. We'll stop there. Uh, you'll recall that Saul is first mentioned, if you've been with us in our study, Saul is first mentioned by name in Acts chapter 7, verse 58. On the day that Stephen preached that mighty message, and then he stoned to death, remember that the garments were thrown at the feet of who? Saul. First time he's mentioned. And then in chapter 8, as you see here in chapter 9, Saul is the immediate opening name of chapter 8 and chapter 9. Though the rest of chapter 8, we just finished chapter 8, you'll recall that most of chapter 8 is not about Saul at all. It was primarily about the ministry of Philip the Evangelist. But Saul is the opening name in chapter 8, and Saul is the opening name in chapter 9. Here's both verses side by side. That's the same in your Bible, although your wording, depending on which version you have, might be slightly different. Now Saul was consenting to his death, right? That was the death of Stephen. Now Saul was still breathing murder and threats, or threats and murder. Luke essentially picks back up with the ninth chapter. He essentially, there's this interlude of the life of Philip, the early life of Philip. Obviously, Philip lived well beyond that, but the, uh, the early ministry of Philip. There's the uh, interlude, but Luke essentially picks back up with the ninth chapter with Saul still scattering the church, still wreaking havoc on all the believers, that after all that God had done through Philip and Samaria and the Ethiopian eunuch and the cities there on the coastal plain, which is today where Gaza is and all that area. 
Saul, while Philip was evangelizing that part, Saul was still on the war path to wipe out the church. Which obviously he hadn't done because Philip, while he was trying to wipe out the church, God had added all of Samaria, had this massive revival, and so he had not wiped out the church. But he had wiped a lot of it out in parts of Judea and around Jerusalem. Or at least put them in prison. That, that, there's still, you, don't wipe, you put people in prison and they know Jesus, you haven't wiped them out. They're just in a different zip code. But Saul, blinded by rage... And soon to be literally blinded, he didn't know that, but he was blinded by rage, soon to be literally blinded, decides to head northeast and track down believers that probably thought they were no danger at all. Hey, we're in Damascus now. Thank goodness we're well out of the reach of Saul. Nowhere near Jerusalem. It appears that Saul's every waking moment was to seek out and to purge the Jewish community of anyone that professes faith in Jesus. It's believed that Saul is probably in his early 30s at this time. Uh, he was considered to be one of the most promising young Pharisees in all of Judaism. And one of the most strict followers of the law in Jerusalem. Saul was, he was a guy destined to reach high levels of authority within the Jewish leadership. Saul was born in Tarsus. Many of you have uh, probably seen that on your maps. You can look at it in the back of your Bible. Uh, that's in modern-day Turkey. He possessed Roman citizenship from birth. But even though he was born in a Roman province, uh, because you had Jewish synagogues, as went later, Saul will be Paul, and he'll go visit synagogues all over Turkey, all over Greece, in Rome. But... Even though he was raised in a Roman province there, he was raised in his family with strict adherence to the law. Because you had Jews that had adopted the Greco-Roman culture, and you had Jews that had resisted the Greco-Roman culture. Saul came from a family that had completely rejected the Greco-Roman culture. It would be like if you see the Jewish Orthodox in New York, right? That, that, that part of Brooklyn, they kind of reject the modern culture, and they stick with this strong orthodox. And that's the way Saul, I'm not saying that they dressed the same, I'm saying that he had the strict orthodoxy that they were not going to waver from their adherence to the Torah. He didn't come from a family that adopted Greek fashion, uh, strictly following the scriptures. Now Saul, he was sent, to Tar he was sent from Tarsus, where he was from, uh, as a younger individual, he was sent to Jerusalem to be trained in the school of Gamaliel. And Gamaliel, the school of Gamaliel was named for the rabbi Gamaliel, who was a member of the Sanhedrin. Some, uh, some believe Saul himself had become a member of the Sanhedrin by this time. We don't know that for sure, but it's certainly possible. But Gamaliel was the, he was the elder statesman, the most prominent teacher of the Jewish law of the Torah at that time. He was the guy that people looked to say, hey, I have a question about this verse in Deuteronomy. What did Gamaliel have to say about it? That he was the prominent voice. But Saul, like the men of, remember the synagogue of the freedmen? They were the ones that kind of made sure that everyone came against Stephen. Like, the, like those men of the synagogue of the freedmen, Saul was not content to let the church just worship peacefully and serve Jesus. He was not content to let them live and let live. He was determined. I mean, he was ambitious. He was determined to arrest, to imprison, and to kill the church if that's what it took for what he fully believed. He believed the church. He believed the way, which we're going to see later he believed that these believers were a big threat to the law of Moses and to the worship of God. He thought he was the last line of defense for keeping the Torah uncompromised. Now, much like a Muslim jihadist today, and we all see this in the news, and we have for, for several decades now, but at times more than others, 
much like a Muslim jihadist today, Saul thought it was reasonable. In fact, he thought it was his duty to dismantle and destroy the church. And he thought that God was well pleased with his zeal. By the way, unlike, unlike the terrorist and jihadist of, say, ISIS or Hamas, that's obviously um, front page news right now, Saul and those that were with him, uh, Saul and those who were with him did not believe that raping women was allowable uh, and they're rooting out the church. Uh, Saul would have seen the rape of women as a sexual sin that God was against because he followed the law to a strict adherence. Now, he would imprison people because he thought he was actually keeping the law pure, but to rape people and rape women specifically, that is not something that Saul and his uh, entourage would have done because they would have seen that as an evil violation of God's law. Now granted, all that said, their imprisoning of people and their murder. Uh, how do we know it's murder? Well, Luke says it right out of the gate. Then Saul still breathing threats and murder. Their imprisoning and murder of believers was a massive violation of God's law. Thou shalt not murder. He's committing murder. He's massively violating the law, and he doesn't know it. But his contemporaries, those that were his companions, they were of the mindset that they were God's instrument in punishing two primary things, blasphemy and idolatry. That they were the ones handling blasphemy and idolatry on behalf of God. Now, when you see terrorists yelling Allah Akbar and stuff like that, they're, they're saying, hey, we're doing this for... Now, Allah is not the real God. There's only one true and living God. But they think they're doing it for their God. And Saul thought he was doing it for actually the true and living God. He thought he truly was. Jesus said, remember he told one of the disciples, he goes, there will be some that will kill you and they will think they're doing God a service. <laughs> you know he had Saul in mind on this one, right? He said they will think they're doing God a service. At any rate, Saul was deceived by Satan. People have used the Bible and misused the Bible plenty in history. Amen to that, right? We've seen cults, we've seen false leaders. Uh, so people have misused the Bible. You can twist it to your own destruction, as Peter would later write. But Saul was deceived by Satan in unleashing this horrible assault. I can't even imagine, but it was a horrible assault upon the church. I mean, everyone was shaking and running, and in prison, and with mourning lost loved ones, and people that have been thrown in jail. All the while, Saul is angry, he is ambitious, he is utterly convinced that he was righteous, that he alone was God's vessel to make sure that the violation of law ceases. He, he thought he was the righteous guy in the room. Wow. Talk about self-righteous. He is the archetype of self-righteousness. Now back to verses 1 and 2. So he's breathing these threats. He goes to the high priest. He gets letters uh, from the high priest. And the high priest is Caiaphas, same Caiaphas that condemned Jesus to death, or at least took him to Pilate. Pilate made the final condemnation. But same Caiaphas is still in power uh, as the uh, rulers, as the high priest in Jerusalem. And so he gets, he gets letters. Of course Caiaphas is going to go along with this. Caiaphas like, like I want to kill the church as much as you do. I'll just let you be the bad guy. You'll be the face of this. So he gets letters from Caiaphas, and, and it says that he was going to go and find any who were of the way, whether men or women. He didn't care if you were a, um, a sweet old lady, he would throw you in prison. He didn't care if you were a man, woman, presumably children too, anybody that was of the family. Uh, but at any rate, he goes and he gets these letters gets permission to go well outside of Jerusalem and to go all the way to Damascus and Damascus to the northeast of Jerusalem. You know it's in Syria. It was in Syria then. It's in Syria today. It's still in Syria. There's still a major prophecy that the Bible speaks of with Damascus. Someday the city is going to be turned into an ash heap, but that has not happened yet. My good friend uh, John Samara, who I hope to have back here in 2024, he's 
from, he's from Damascus. That's why their ministry is called Ananias' house, because as we just read, Ananias is the one that is used by God to bring Saul uh, to saving faith. But so he goes 130, he's going he's gonna to travel 130 miles northeast. That's by foot a six-day journey. That's how ambitious and zealous he was to track down Christians. You know, I wish that we could find believers that had this much zeal for Jesus. I, 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 even though I sometimes is amazed at the, um, whether it be people that are radical climate change people that like, uh, I mean, they're on the streets uh, more times out of the year than, than you and I, I don't know, sleep or something. And they uh, just protesting or whether they be uh, radical Islam. I mean, I will say that some people's dedication to things that are false is incredible. We need to have a lot more zeal for Jesus for what we know is true. But Saul was either he was either concerned about Christianity just growing well outside of Israel, or he had heard that some believers escaped to Damascus, and I believe that it was both. I believe he was concerned about the growth of Christianity. I believe he also was aware that some had escaped to Damascus. Either way, he was relentless in his pursuit. Saul, his name when he was born in Tarsus, it was very common in those days for people to have more than one name. When he was born, he was given the name Saul and Paul. Saul was his Jewish name. Why? First king of Israel was Saul from the tribe of Benjamin. Saul was his Jewish name. He also was given the name Paul, which was more of his Roman name. Remember, he had the Roman citizenship. He later would go and use the name Paul because he was sent by God to the Gentiles, so he began to use his Gentile. He had two names, and again, that was very, very common. You know, you have Peter, who's Simon, and he's Simon Peter, but he's also, he's got these multiple names, and it was just not unusual in those times. But he's still here. He's only by Saul. He would never appropriate his Roman name at this point in time. He really is, you know, uh, wanting to be uh, known as someone who is keeping the Jewish faith uh, pure. And, uh, but he would say of his former life, uh, in Galatians, up on the screen, Galatians 1, this tells you how intense he was. And he understood it after the fact. Uh, Galatians 1, 13 and 14, he says, For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I advanced in Judaism beyond my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my father. He's like, in some way, he was more zealous than Caiaphas. Paul's like, there was no one among my contemporaries that was more vigilant to track down and destroy the church than me. And I think we know it's true because Jesus comes to him, right? Of all the people, that's who Jesus comes to. Jesus like, that's the one that I am going to go after. He's the most zealous against me of everybody. And by the way, we exaggerate, not meaning to, we'll say something like, I ate 50 pounds of that yesterday. No, it was only eight ounces. So you did not eat 50 pounds. Or I, I walked a trillion miles yesterday. No, you did not walk a trillion miles. You walked seven. You know, but we'll kind of throw out these weird numbers, and, and they're just exaggerations. The Bible doesn't do that. When it says that he persecuted the church beyond measure, he persecuted the church beyond measure, like beyond your comprehension. That he said he tried to destroy it, he literally tried to destroy it. The church and believers are referred to here as the way. You might see that in your text. Uh, this seems to be the earliest name for the growing group of believers that trusted in Jesus Christ. They were called the way before they were called the church or the believers or Christians. Now, they referred to themselves as disciples primarily, but they were called the way. We know that one of the names of Jesus is the way, John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, the life. What a testimony of the early church. And it really needs to be our testimony in 2023 in a nation that has lost all moral clarity, all moral compass, and has fallen apart at the seams. But the early church, it was understood by the non-believers, when they looked at them, they understood their life was Jesus. 
that his way was now their way. Let me ask you, brother and sister, is his way your way? Are you still having your own way? The way. Verse 3, as he journeyed and came near Damascus, and suddenly, uh, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. As Saul and his entourage are journeying to Damascus, most of his trip appears to be uneventful. But as he gets closer to Jerusalem, it's going to change. By the way, have you ever gone on a trip and it's uneventful until like the last 45 minutes? It's, it's the worst. I don't know how many times I've made great time in traffic. I'm like, we're going to set a record. We're going to get there in record time. 30 minutes from destination, complete stop. Like, how do we? There's only four more exits. And I will not see them for the next two hours. But it was mostly uneventful. But then suddenly, obviously a way bigger issue than that, this bright light from heaven comes out of nowhere and it shines all around Saul, not just at him, but all around him. In Acts chapter 26, when, it's, when he recounts one of the two times of his conversion or the, his road to Damascus experience, uh, he says it was at midday. This light shines brighter than the Middle Eastern sun. Look at verse 4. He fell to the ground and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? The very light of God, he drops to the ground. The very light of God is more powerful than anything we can conceive. By the way, God can knock anybody to the ground anytime he chooses. At the end of the age, he says, every knee is going to bow, every tongue is going to confess. There's not going to be anyone saying, hey, if God's so big, why doesn't he just take me out right now? I've heard people say stuff like that. You'll get your opportunity. <laughs> but I pray you'd come to the Lord before them. But here's this voice, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus did this other times. When he did it, it would convey the deep urgency or the deep emotion. He said, Martha, Martha, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Now Saul doesn't know it's Jesus. By the way, you know, because Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? I've heard people say, I've had people tell me this. Hey, I'm fine with Jesus. It's just Christians in the church I don't like. Really? If you despise the sheep, you despise the shepherd. You just don't know that. But if you despise the sheep, you despise the shepherd. These are, we are, we are his body. Obviously, we're, we're imperfect, but his blood covers us. But we have become part of his body. Now, notice Saul's response. He doesn't know he's talking to Jesus. But he does say in verse 5, who are you, Lord? He knows. He says, Lord, capital L-O-R-D. He knows that this is the very Lord of heaven. He knows that. He goes, I know that this bright light that came, that's dwarfing the sun, and this voice that came out of nowhere that's speaking not from a body, but right out of the clouds. He knows it's the Lord, but he's confused because he thought he was on a mission from God, and he's being told he's persecuting. Like, hold on, I thought I, thought I had your blessing on this, and you're saying I'm persecuting you? He doesn't even know who he is. But Jesus tells him, the rest of verse 5, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. He, Jesus says it twice that you're persecuting. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. Now Saul knows exactly who he's talking to. He knows who stopped him in his track. He knows who's brought him to his knees and his face in the dust. And the Lord has his full attention. It's Jesus. Jesus says, I am Jesus. And all of a sudden, Saul knows Jesus really is alive. He really has risen from the dead. He really is glorified. Everything that he thought was a lie of the disciples was a fable. They had hid the body. Remember all the stories that Caiaphas and them concocted? They said, can you make sure that these guys are exonerated from... Saul thought the whole thing was smoke and mirrors, that they had somehow concocted this story. Jesus had not risen from the dead. He had not burst forth from the grave. But now he's talking. He's personally talking to Jesus. Now he knows he is alive. And we know 
that to be an apostle, which God has called him to be, he doesn't know he's going to become an apostle, he's just Saul at this point, but he's about to become an apostle. To be an apostle, one of the things, remember you have to, be, you have to perform miracles by the power of God, you had to have seen Jesus personally, face-to-face, risen, and then Saul, later when he's called Paul in 1 Corinthians 9.1, says rhetorically, am I not an apostle? Of course he is. Am I not free? Yes, he's free. Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? You're saved here. Jesus lives within you. But most of us in this room, I would say all of us, have never physically seen Jesus yet. Just the televangelists on TV. They're the only ones. I say it all, you know. They, they've seen things I never will see in this lifetime. And if you believe that, then you believe whatever else they're selling. But anyway, uh, Saul, not only, Saul not only saw a bright light, we believe right here he also saw Jesus. It, matter of fact, it was the glory of Jesus that was blinding him. It was the glory of Jesus that was brighter than the sun. Now, he doesn't record it here, but it, it, uh, you kind of get the impression of that in the other two. And then he says in his other epistles, he makes it clear he not only heard, but saw Jesus. And again, if to be an apostle, you had to have seen the risen Jesus. And we believe that he does see Jesus in his glorified state, and uh, it overwhelms everything in him. Now, Jesus says to Saul, it's hard to kick against the goads. Most of you probably don't use the word goads in your vernacular. I don't. But goads were a sharp stick. Sharp stick could have metal on the metal sharp point on the end. Could be just sharpened to like an arrow. But you would use it when you have a team of oxen. They would prick the back of the oxen's legs to make sure they get moving or to move them in a certain direction. Remember, Saul, he had heard Stephen's mighty message filled with God's power. He had seen Stephen's face light up like an angel. That's a pretty good sign that, you know, God is moving in the moment, right? right. He had heard Stephen preach all of those things. And what did, what did Saul do on that day? Stubbornly and angrily, he refused to believe. Saul, who was as stubborn as an ox, for the law and against Christ, was soon to be coming stubborn as an ox for Christ. Amen? Amen? By the way, God wants us to be kind of resolute, steadfast, and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, to become stubborn against the things that we used to love and for. You know, I, as for me and my house, we will serve. That's Joshua saying, we will not budge. He was that way against Christ. God's going to make him that way for Christ. So many people, and you've probably seen testimonies or maybe read biographies of saints, but so many devoted saints were formerly the most opposed to God. But when they come to God, they can't be budged, right? Peter's like, once he was all in, he's like, crucify me upside down. And many of the believers in the Middle East are some of the strong, in Korea too, North Korea, some of the strongest in the world because they come out of maybe completely disbelieving or maybe even radical Islam against the Christian faith or against Jewish people, and then they come to Christ, and now they have this indomitable spirit that obviously is the spirit of God. Verse 6, um, so he trembling, Saul trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what, uh, what do you want me to do? And the Lord said to him, Arise, go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. In a matter of minutes, Saul has become a humbled man. And by the way, if anyone truly hears from Jesus and recognizes and believes that Jesus is the Savior, and they see their condition as revealed by Jesus, and then they're willing to obey Jesus, humbling ourselves becomes the point or the doorway to our salvation. God says he resists the proud, but he gives what? Grace to the humble. Everyone, I don't care who you are, you're going to have to humble yourself to come to Christ. And Jesus was bringing Saul to a place of humbling himself, trembling on his face. And so Saul says, what should I do? And Jesus says, arise, arise, go into 
this city. Verse 7, uh, and the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, I bet. Saul's just cruising along. They see the bright light. They see, fall, they see Saul fall to the ground. They see him having a conversation with nobody. They don't know what's going on. They're speechless. They don't say a word. We know from Saul's later account that Jesus spoke to him in the Hebrew language. He says that later in his own account. He says, Jesus spoke to me in the Hebrew language. Um, Saul, the Pharisees, the rabbis, the scribes, those that had religious authority, they spoke Hebrew. The common population, for the most part, could not speak Hebrew. They spoke Aramaic. It was the educated religious leaders that spoke Hebrew. Most of the people then, uh, it was Aramaic. But for whatever reason, Jesus let only Saul, and I don't think it was the language barrier, for whatever reason, I believe Saul is having a conversation, but he's walled off everyone else. They hear thunder, they might even hear a voice, but they can't, they can't decipher any of it. So they're hearing voices, obviously they're hearing Saul speak, but the voice of God, loud, rumbling, but they can't make any words out of it, so they just stand speechless. Uh, verse 8, um, it goes on to say, Then Saul rose from the ground. When his eyes were open, he saw no one, but they led him by the hand and brought him to Damascus. And he was there three days without sight and neither ate nor drank. So he is that, he's then taken by the hand. He opens his eyes, but now they don't work. He gets up and he's as blind as he can be and they have to then uh, guide him. Um, the men had seen the same light, but they didn't see it in the bright blinding way. Does this make sense? They saw the same light, but it only blinded Saul. God made sure that they were not blinded by it because they were going to be leading him into the city, but only Saul is blinded by it. Oh, by the way, Jesus can do that. He can make sure he can speak and no one hears it but one person and everyone uh, keeps their vision but one person. That's just not hard for the Lord. And so he blinds Saul. He doesn't have any food or drink. Um, and, and Saul is wondering what in the world is taking place. Dr. J. Vernon McGee had this to say. He said there was never, at this moment in Saul's life, he said there was never a man as confused as he was. Had we met him in one of those three days in Damascus and asked him what had happened to him, he goes on to say, Saul, I don't really know. But he's going to find out. He is going to find out. Jesus is going to show him exactly what is taking place. The irony is that Saul, while he had his sight, was completely blinded to Jesus. But once he lost his sight, he could see Jesus. Fully vis full vision, can't see his need for Jesus. Loses his vision, now he sees his need for Jesus. It would be better. For anybody to lose their vision and come to Christ and keep their vision, Jesus said it would be better to take one of your eyes out and make it into the kingdom maimed. Verses 10 and 11, Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas. Uh, for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he is praying, and in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. So the Lord has prepared a disciple in Damascus by the name of Ananias, uh, who does not know he's been prepared for this moment. Uh, have you ever been prepared for moments you did not know until later you'd been prepared for? You say, ah, that's why I went through that trial or that difficulty or that failure or met that person. But he had been prepared and didn't know he's been prepared. And Saul is also being prepared for Ananias, and Saul didn't know he was being prepared. Both men are being prepared by God, and neither one knew they were being prepared for this moment with the other. In much the same way that the Ethiopian eunuch was completely prepared to meet Philip, and Philip had nothing to do with getting him prepared, he just was sent there to do the easy job of saying, what are you reading? Oh, Isaiah 53. This is going to be the easiest conversion discussion I've ever had. I've never walked up to someone and said, hey, I'm reading Isaiah 53, can you please help me? <laughs> that would be great. Maybe it's a good prayer to start praying. Or, hey, I just was blinded by God for the last three days, can you help me? You know, these are, these are moments that only God can do. But in other words, both the men, both Saul here and Ethiopian eunuch prior, they were ready by God for the day of salvation without anyone witnessing to them on that specific day. Obviously, Saul had heard the gospel before, he heard Stephen. 
the Ethiopian eunuch may have heard it before as well. But on the day that they were ready, no one had been talking to them. God had just been preparing their hearts. And I remember the day I got saved, no one had witnessed to me. God had got me out of bed from hungover the night before and got me there. So God readies us for that day. But Saul, he says, hey, you'll find him there. He's praying. Pastor David Guzik said this. He said, Saul had said many prayers, but he had never truly prayed. Many people will pray. They'll go and say their rosaries or they'll go to church or you know whatever. And if they don't have a personal relationship, they've never really prayed in the Spirit. They've really not had that relationship with God. But Ananias, um, remember he said, here I am, Lord. And then the Lord tells him where he's going. And Ananias says, hold on just a second. I said, here I am, but I, that was if I was going to go lead a Bible study. Or that was if I was going to go take a meal to a widow down the street. What do you mean, Saul? And then Ananias, look at what he says, Verse 13, then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man. The whole church that's fled Jerusalem has told Ananias, he's heard the story a lot. I've heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he, here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. So Ananias has a kind of rethinking of things. Um, yes, I did say, here I am, Lord. But, uh-oh, uh, Lord, I need to tell you, I need to explain to you who Saul is. Like, Jesus doesn't know who Saul is. Like, did you know he's in prison? He's actually coming. He, he's a terror. Look at Jesus' response. Verse, uh, verse 15, 16. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is my chosen vessel, is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel, for I will show him many things he must suffer for my name's sake. He tells him, Ananias, I know all that. Go. He's my vessel, and God can make anybody he wants into his vessel. Amen? Amen. Anybody that he chooses. And he says, Jesus said, I've chosen him for two reasons. They're up on the screen. Number one, he's going to bear my name. Number two, he's going to suffer for my name. I'd like that for your initial calling. It's been observed by many. Now, it could be it's possible that no one individual was ever, I'm not saying definitively, I'm just saying at least at that time for sure, that one individual had never been so focused on causing the church so much harm and so much suffering that God's like, I'm going to flip the script. You caused a lot of suffering, now you're going to suffer for me. No one had caused, like, he was renowned for his persecution of the church. But uh, at any rate, he's called to now suffer and it's been observed by many that Saul, who later will go by his name Paul, has probably suffered as much or more throughout his life than any believer in the last 2,000 years. You know, most of us in life, we have life goes along and we have these seasons of suffering. Saul had the opposite. He had a lifetime of suffering with a couple of little seasons of not suffering. Does that make sense? Most of us, it's like, uh, man, we, our good days are far better. And then we had these few, and they come up, and they're, not, they're, they're painful when they come up. But his was like almost all suffering, and then a, a, kind, a few relief points here and there. So if you think you're suffering, just compare your life to, to Paul. And if God gave him the grace, he said his grace is sufficient, it'll be sufficient for us too. Let's wind this down. Verse 17, and Ananias uh, went his way and entered the house and laid his hands on him and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road has come and sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales and he received his sight at once and he arose and was baptized. So Ananias does arise and go. He's like, okay, Lord, if he's your vessel, even if I don't make it out of there alive, you're telling me to go. And so he takes courage. Uh, Ananias takes great courage. It takes a lot of courage to even to say, all right, I'm going to go. He still didn't know if Saul was playing a game, if he was just acting like he was going to be kind to the church or whatever. He doesn't know. He takes great courage in going to Saul, but then great compassion in greeting Saul. And uh, he enters the house. He lays his hands on this formerly dangerous man. He says, Brother Saul. And it goes to remind us that we're going to have to go in courage, 
But when we get there, we're going to have to show compassion. Amen. Wherever we go, go and courage. When we get there, we have to show compassion. And he says, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who has appeared to you on the road has sent me. So he's basically saying, welcome to the family of God. We are now brothers in the Lord. And, uh, and this is either Saul's exact moment of conversion, or it's the confirmation of his conversion. I lean to the fact that this is the moment of his conversion. Uh, Rich, uh, pastor Richard Les, uh, Lenski, who was a pastor in the late 1800s, early 1900s, he says this, he says, It is often said that Saul was converted on the road to Damascus. Strictly speaking, this is not the fact. His conversion began with his encounter with the law, but it was not accomplished until the gospel entered his heart by faith. And that did not occur on the road, but in Damascus. And so uh, that everything God was, had softened him up over those three days, and he was finally ready to fully say, Give me Jesus. I am all in. So, again, it was either his conversion or the confirmation of his conversion. Uh, we can't be 100% sure. Even my own salvation. I remember the day I was at Calvary Fort Lauderdale. Me and my wife walked forward to get saved. I, I sometimes look back. I said, did I get saved while I was still in the chair, somewhere between the chair and the altar, or at the altar? Because when did I fully yield? That's not that big a deal at that point. The fact is, I can look back and know that I did. And so God will actually, when we get to heaven, he'll show you the pinpoint moment. But um, uh, here, I believe this is the, his moment of salvation. And like at Pentecost, uh, like in Acts chapter 2, it's, it appears that he receives salvation. He receives the inward seal of the Holy Spirit. He receives the overflow baptism of the Holy Spirit. And he's baptized, water baptized, all at the same time. That happened in Acts 2, but that doesn't happen with everybody. Some people, those are steps. They first get saved, they receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit, they're fully immersed by the Spirit, then they get water baptized, or they get water baptized first, and then they have this immersion of the Spirit. So uh, at at any rate, uh, this all happens at the same time for Saul, and we saw that in Acts chapter 2. So God can do it uh, a couple of different ways. Verse 19 and 20, as we close, so when he had received food, he was strengthened. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. Immediately, he preached the Christ in the synagogues. The very synagogues he was coming to arrest people, he ended up preaching Jesus in the synagogue. As as soon as he gets saved, like immediately, that he was the Son of God. So, he gets saved. He's welcome to the family of God. He gets some food. He has a fellowship, a potluck, if you will, with the church. He has some food. He gets some fellowship. And immediately he's ready to preach Christ. He's like, all right, got food in me. Where's the nearest synagogue? I am ready to jump in the pulpit. And he does. Now, thank the Lord, not everyone is called to this. Not everyone's immediately called to jump in the pulpit and preach, uh, but everyone is called to the process that we saw. To get saved, to get fed, to get into fellowship, and then be a witness for Jesus. Amen? That timeline follows the same, uh, but obviously he has a really different calling, uh, really in the whole history of the church. But, but Saul is in the Bible for us to remember that anyone can be saved. Amen? And not only saved, but anyone can then be made a, a, a New Testament Moses for God in a matter of moments. That makes sense? Let's pray. Father, we, we bow our hearts again before you. Uh, Lord Jesus, we are so grateful uh, that uh, you so loved the world, that you gave yourself. You so loved Saul, even while he was persecuting you. You said he was persecuting you personally. And then you still reached out and loved to save him. Lord, you would do the same uh, for anyone here this morning. And Lord, before we take of these elements to close this service, if there's even one person here that doesn't know you, Lord, I pray that they... Their hearts would be pricked by the Holy Spirit and know that they need Jesus today. Don't to, not to put it off. They're not guaranteed tomorrow. So before we take of the Lord's Supper elements, it's going to close our service. If with your heads bowed, if there's even one person here that says, you know, I've never come to Jesus. I've resisted. I've waited. I've put it off. But you want to give your heart and life to Christ today and you want to know that you have the hope of heaven and You don't have to worry about hell or a future judgment, but you have salvation and your sins forgiven and guilt and shame. Raise your hand. I want to pray with you. There's even one person. I don't want to assume everybody here is ready for eternity. You might all be. 
But there might be one that's not. Is there even one? Just raise your hand and I want to pray with you. Or lead you in a prayer. If we all know the Lord, and those of you online as well, uh, we're going to take the Lord's Supper. Uh, just take the worship team's going to play a song. And while they're playing, just take the moment to talk to Jesus yourself personally and say, Lord, thank you for saving me. Lord, cleanse me and, and purify me as I take these elements. I don't want to take them in an unworthy manner. This is for believers, so uh, let's do that, and then we'll take these elements together.